Today, we are going to be going to the Gospel of Luke. And specifically, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, and there we're going to discover a prophet, or I should say more specifically, a prophetess. And it's interesting, there are only three verses attributed to her. And when I say that in Luke chapter 2, just simply three verses, you will not find her mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. This is the only place we find her. And so what we're about to unpack today is uh, really a treasure trove. It's very precious because there's nothing else you can learn about her other than what we are given in the gospel of Luke. And so we're going to dig into Anna the prophetess today. And how we're going to do this is how we do so many other lessons. We're going to set the stage. And you got to have the context, and you're going to appreciate why you need the context before we finally get to learn about her, what is written of her, uh, the very little we have. Uh, before we get there, there's, there's something you got to witness. And uh, so with no further ado, let's break into this. We're going to go to Luke chapter 2. And Luke chapter 2, just as a little backdrop before we un- unpack this, Luke chapter 2 is the birth of the Messiah, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's finally manifested uh, what so many Christians typically identify as the Christmas story. This is, uh, you know, one of the more well-known chapters in the New Testament. And so we're going to dig into this. And uh, I'm going to start in verse 22. And this is what we read. Now, when the days of her, meaning Mary... When the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Yerushalayim to present him to the Lord. Now, the the backdrop here is is it's according to the law, right? According to the law of Moses, that's why they're doing this. It's a reference to Leviticus 12. In Leviticus 12, it makes it very clear that there's a time of purification. When a woman gives birth to a child, there's a time of purification for a son. There's a time of purification for a daughter. They are not the same. A son is 40 days. A daughter would be double that. And so here's the thing. Without saying it, Luke is very intentionally conveying information to us of when they're going to the temple. We know how old Yeshua was. He's, he's over a month old uh, as they're going to the temple here, as they're going to present him. And then continue on in verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord... Every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, it's interesting because there's all sorts of parts of Torah that we could go to. We could talk about Exodus 13. We could talk about Numbers 18. We could go to Deuteronomy. All over the place, you find that the Torah commands that the firstborn son, the firstborn son is to be presented before the Lord. He is to be holy before the Lord. And it's interesting Uh, You're to do that, ironically, in the first month. That's when you're to do it. So again, we know the timing of when this is to happen. And so moving on, before we do that, let let me mention one thing that caught my eye as I went through, and I don't want to just blow past this. In this text, Luke is very intentional as how he uses phraseology. And what do I mean by that? I mean this, here he says the law of Moses, 
And so they're, they're, you know, Joseph and Mary, they're going up to the temple because of the law of Moses. But if you continue, he calls that very same law, the Torah, the law of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? This is intentional. And why do I even point this out? It really has nothing to do about our message today other than this, this point I want to make. He is telling us something about the Torah, something that is very important for all of us to be able to convey. It is something that Christians fail to understand, and oftentimes simply because we're not explaining it properly. And that is the following. The commandments of the Lord are not traditions or commandments of the rabbis. They're not traditions of men. When a Christian oftentimes hear the the whole concept of the law of Moses, they conflate the understanding of rabbinical law with Torah. And this is very important for us to recognize. But here we are in the New Testament, Luke being very, very intentional about calling the law of Moses what it truly should be recognized as, as the law of the Lord. Because it's his mind, it's not Moses' mind. They were not Moses' commandments. They were the Lord's commandments. And it's interesting, the very same procedure, shall I say, that Luke uses here, you will find used in Nehemiah 8, where it first is called the law, or the book of the law of Moses, And then it goes on later to say the book of the law of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Exact same process, exact same way what we see Luke doing here. And there's a reason. And so this is good for us to see just before I blow past that. All right, now getting further on, verse 24, we can move. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons... Now, it's interesting, when you go to Leviticus 12, and you look at what's commanded, this is not what is commanded initially. The initial commandment is that you would offer a lamb, and then you would offer a turtle dove or a pigeon. The lamb would be the burnt sacrifice, and then, of course, you would have the sin sacrifice. That is what is commanded. However, if you cannot afford that offering... The text goes on to say, then you can offer two turtle doves or two pigeons. And now here you got Luke again giving us a boatload of information without even having to say things. By telling us that this was the sacrifice that was made, it tells you that Yeshua was not born into wealth. He was not born into a wealthy family. They were poor. They could not afford the regular sacrifice that was to be offered. They had to do the elective sacrifice, if you will. Moving on to verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Yerushalayim whose name was Simeon. And this man was just, Dikaios. He was holy. He was righteous. This means he was walking in the commandments of the Lord. He was walking in faith. He was just and devout. Well, is devout even really anything different than just? Let me put this up on the Greek here. Eulabes. That word is cautious. So he is just and cautious. What does that mean? Well, as we continue, we find out exactly what that means. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, this man, Simeon, was watching and waiting. He had his waist girded and his lamp was burning. 
I mean, these, these words that we get from Yeshua in Luke chapter 12 to tell you, you better be waiting and watching for my return, for my coming. Be waiting. Simeon was. Because he was Eulabes, because he was cautious, that drove him to be up and not fall into a, a spiritual depravity, not fall asleep, not to be taken by surprise, not to be distracted by the things of the world. He held the line. He was constantly looking for what? The consolation of Israel, which is to say the joy, the hope, the comfort, the Redeemer, the Messiah. His focus was all on the Messiah. This is what he wanted. And then we move forward. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, you're going to see the benefit of that, that this is an anointed man of God. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Mashiach. And that's the benefit of receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that. See, because the new covenant is set up such that when we receive the gospel, the anointing is to come down. We're to commune with God. And what does that tell you? It tells you the Spirit is going to speak to you. And whether you listen or not, well, that's on you. I mean, I was just having a conversation yesterday. I've actually had this conversation several times over the last year of thinking how many times the Spirit has spoken to me, and I haven't listened, and I've known it. And how many can you testify when you do not listen to the Spirit as it speaks to you, you agonize? You should. I hope you do. It's a good thing. You, you need to listen to the Spirit. That's the beauty of it. This man listens to the Spirit of God. He believes it. And it had been revealed to him that he would literally in the flesh see the Mashiach, the one he was waiting for. He is going to see. So moving on to verse 27, we get deeper into this. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Yeshua to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, now think about this. How do you wrap your mind around this? This guy is waiting for the Messiah to come, and he sees him, and he takes up literally the son of God in his arms. I, mean, I can't even get over that. What he must have felt at that moment, the comfort, the joy, the deliverance, the victory, everything as he held the child Yeshua, the king of kings and lord of lords in his arms. I mean, that, that, that just kind of it blows my mind. And then he moves to bless God and to say, and before I show you what he says, listen to me carefully. And there's a reason we're going through Simeon first. Everything we're about to read, Anna is witness to. And that's why this information is so important. What we're about to go through, Anna is going to be a witness to. And for you to really appreciate what is going to happen and what we're going to read of her, you need to digest this. This is really, really powerful. In verse 29, we read, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, if he is speaking in Hebrew, he literally would have said Yeshua. My eyes, because that's Yeshua's name. It means salvation. What did Simeon just confess? He is confessing Yeshua is the Messiah. 
He is the one who was promised to come and deliver us. He is the heir to the throne of David. So he is the Mashiach ben David. He's the anointed son of David. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He's for all eternity ruler over all. This is, this is who Simeon is confessing. This is who he believes. This little babe that he's holding his, in his arms really is. I mean, talk about true faith. Which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, and listen to this, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You recognize what Simeon is doing? Simeon is praying the word. He's praying what the prophets had already prophesied and what they had spoken. He is now engaged in communication with the Lord, praying to the Lord. He's literally praying the word. This is a powerful way to pray. And I'll just, to, to support this, I'll, I'll take you and give you an example. I could give you several, but in Isaiah 49, 6, we read, Indeed, he says, now listen, read this carefully. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Yaakov. Now, who's speaking to who? I mean, you have one of these moments like Psalm 45 where you have God speaking to God. It sounds crazy. But you have the father speaking to the son. That's the context. And the father is saying to the son, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be, again, the word in the Hebrew is Yeshua, Yeshua Ati. You should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You will be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now think about what is said. So this is not just the savior of Israel. The one that has come, the Messiah that was promised to come, would save the world. Hence you have John 3, 16, God so loved the world. It doesn't get bigger than this. This is as big as it gets. The coming of this one, of this savior, is the most important uh, event in the history of the world. Especially in regard to if, if you, you care about being saved. And so as we look at this statement that, he is, that he's praying here, he is praying the word. Now, Simeon gets done here for a moment. He's going to take a break. And you're going to see the response of Mary and Joseph. And this is, this is going to be important. This is what we read. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which are spoken of him. Let that sink in. That's perplexing. That's very perplexing to me. And why? Let's just think about what Mary and Joseph have already went through, shall we? These, these are two people that have been engaged by literally an angel. I mean, the angel came to them and conveyed to them a message. It wasn't just any angel. We're talking about the angel Gabriel, one of the most seven powerful and notable angels in the kingdom of God. I mean, you're talking about these seven closest angels to the throne. Gabriel. Gabriel comes and interacts with both of them. We know this. If that isn't enough, well, then, you know, what Gabriel laid on Mary and told her, yeah, well, you're, you're going to conceive. And what you're going to conceive is not of man. It's of the Holy Spirit. And to know that she never had been with a man. And then she conceived. Try to live in that world. That's insane. 
they had already been through some crazy, awesome stuff. You know, when you go through certain stuff and somebody comes up to you and, and, and is attempting to wow you and you're like, oh, dude, I've been there and done that. That's not a big deal. You know what you said? And, you know, you're coming up to me, you're acting like this. You should. But for me, you don't know my experiences. Well, I, I look at this and I look at the experiences of Mary and Joseph and to make them marvel, that takes something. To make these two marvel at this point, I got to tell you, it takes a lot. What is it that he said? What is it about this statement? My eyes have seen your Yeshua, your salvation, and he's going to be the entire savior of the world. You know, some people hear that and they're like, yeah, big deal. This is such a big deal that Joseph and Mary's mind were blown so I, I, you know, what it tells me is I don't think we truly understand the gospel anymore. I don't really think we really believe its power anymore. If we, if we really truly appreciated the gospel, we would be responding in the way that Joseph and Mary have responded to the gospel, the one she gave birth to. Literally, Yeshua is the gospel. Well, Simeon's not done. He's going to continue. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Again, here you have Simeon prophesying and prophesying in the context of saying the same thing the prophets have already told us. That the Messiah who is to come, he would be as a sanctuary, as a holy place. But a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel. He would be as a trap. He would be as a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they, many, it actually says in the text, when you read Isaiah 8, it actually says in the text, many in Israel would fall. They would fall. They would be broken. They'd be snared. They'd be taken. Now, just think about this. Again, put this in historical context. I ask you, what Jew in the first century, and think about the Jews being totally oppressed by a bunch of pagan Romans in their own land that God gave them. You want to talk about a horrible situation. You want to talk about a horrible context. You're in my land, get out of my land. But now you have pagans dictating what you can do and what you can't do. They want to be out from the rule of that. What the Jews were waiting for in the first century was the Messiah to come and deliver them, to be the king over Israel. You're not thinking that this one's going to come and many in Israel are going to fall. That is the last thing you would be thinking. But the reason I bring this up is this, for Yeshua to be the true Messiah, the king of the Jews, for him to truly fit that according to the prophets, he had to be rejected by his own. Psalm 118.22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The builders, the Sanhedrin, meaning the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, rejecting him, the builders, that is a fulfillment of prophecy. He, it was exactly what Simeon said. He is destined for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. In Israel. That is an amazing thing. And then he goes on and he says this, and for a sign that which will be spoken against. 
Yeshua, so what does he tell us in the Gospel of Matthew? You can read, he says, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what is that about? It's about his death and resurrection. That is the only sign that generation was given. And it was a sign that was spoken against everywhere. The followers of the way, you can read Acts chapter 28, the followers of the way and what they were proclaiming in the resurrection of the Lord, it was being spoken against everywhere. Exactly how Simeon said. You can read the rest of Acts, it's exactly what he said. And obviously, uh, as we go on to verse 35, we read this. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, he's speaking directly to Mary at this point. And her, her, she would, her soul would be pure. I mean, uh, this is kind of obvious what he's getting at and what would happen, what Mary would have to go through. Here you have this mother of a child that is supernatural, whom she loves as a mother, having to watch her son betrayed, having to watch her son beaten, tormented, spit upon, hung, hung from a cross, the pagan way of, of implementing the death penalty, hung on a cross, and then eventually killed. A mother I, I can't fathom, I have children, I can't fathom any woman having to go through watching that happen to their child. It is unthinkable to me. And yet, this had to happen. This had to happen, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You remember when, when Barabbas, when, when Pilate came out, so you want Barabbas or do you want Yeshua the Mashiach? Who do you want? The thoughts of many hearts were revealed. They cried out for Barabbas. The thoughts of many hearts would be continued to be revealed with the spreading of the gospel on those who would believe and on those who would deny and reject it. Now, moving on, verse 36. Now there was one, Anna the prophetess. Finally, we get to the heart of the matter here. Everything we just read, you remember, Anna is going to be witness to. All right, And with her introduction, again, Luke is very, very careful in how he pens his letter. So much thought. There are other characteristics and elements that he's going to mention in regard to her, but the first thing, the thing that he makes sure gets the law of first mention above all else is the fact that she is a prophet. More than anything, that's what he leads with. What does that tell you about her? I'm going to tell you this. It tells me everything virtually I need to know about her and the fact that this woman had a real relationship with the Lord. She had drawn close to the Lord. She spoke to the Lord. She heard from the Lord. And not just that, the Lord spoke through her to his people. I mean, we're talking about an incredible relationship. This is a woman of clarity. This is a woman of understanding, of great insight. And on the heels of that, because she is a prophet, there is something that I know. If I didn't have to read anything else, I already know this. If she's a legitimate prophet, there's something that she is passionate about more than anything. There's something that consumes her very soul. And what is that? It's what consumed all the prophets' souls. There's one thing you can go through. I just challenge you. Start combing through the prophets. Start reading them. What are they obsessed with? It's one thing. It's Yeshua. They're obsessed. 
They're obsessed with this. Yeshua says himself, he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me. They testify of me. Yeshua says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Why? Moses wrote about me. The Torah is all about him. We read this in Acts 3.24. This is Peter. He says, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. In other words, Peter's looking at his brother and said, all the prophets, my brethren, please understand, all the prophets, everything they said, it's about what I'm telling you. It's about the gospel. It's about the son of God. It's about Mashiach. It's about Yeshua of Nazareth. That's what it's all about. He is the goal of the law. He's obsessed. So one thing I can tell you is this. Anna, like Simeon, is obsessed. She is a prophet. She has a passion that drives her, that gets her up in the morning. She wants the Messiah. She wants Yeshua. I think of Matthew 13, these are Yeshua's words. He says, For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They were longing for this very moment where the word would become flesh and dwell among us. They desired it more than anything. And guess what? Anna's going to see it. This prophet who was, who was raised up at this time for such a time as that, for this purpose, to witness this. You think about the honor that has been bestowed upon this woman. That's an incredible thing. It's a humbling thing when you realize that. Continuing on, going back. Now, there was one, Anna, a prophetess. And then we learn this, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. This is another perplexing statement, at least for some, and certainly in, uh, in relating to some of the conversations I've actually had. I, 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 I thought Israel was destroyed. Wait a second. Israel, over 700 years before this, you know, 722 BC, Israel was destroyed, totally dispersed. And you think about that. And then you read, well, wait a second. What, what in the world is Anna, who is of Israel? She's not a Jew. She's of Israel. What in the world is she doing in Jerusalem? Israel was supposed to be gone. And, you know, some people would say, well, you know, all the lost tribes, they're, they're all lost. Well, clearly, Anna isn't lost. She knows who she is. Luke knows her heritage. Luke knows what tribe she's from. Paul, same thing. The apostle Paul knew he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He wasn't lost. How is this possible? When we read this, what is going on here? I want to shed some light on this. And I want to take you back to 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 13. And from all their territories, the priests and the Levites, who were in all Israel, took their stand with him, meaning Rehoboam. This, this would be the, uh, uh, the son of Solomon. He's king. For the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Yehuda and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Okay, so here's the backdrop of what we just read. The backdrop is, is when Solomon went on, he passed the kingdom on to Rehoboam. Under Rehoboam, the kingdom split. 
It's split in two. You now have the northern tribes, the 10 tribes of Israel, and you have the southern kingdom, Judah. This is what you have. And ruling over Judah is Rehoboam, and ruling over Israel is Jeroboam. Jeroboam didn't want to do things God's way. Jeroboam didn't want his citizens, his people from Israel, going up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. So Jeroboam is going to set up a nice little altar, convenient altar at Bethel. So you don't have to make it all the way to Jerusalem. You just stop right at Bethel. And then he's got one at the tip of his kingdom in Dan. And you can go there and sacrifice. And the other thing Jeroboam did is said, you know, these Levites, even though they were the ones ordained by God to do the ministry, we're not going to do that anymore. Anybody wants to be a priest, hey, doesn't matter. Go ahead, step up. This is how we're going to do things. Okay, so this is the backdrop. This is what's happening with that. We move to verse 16. And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. Interesting. A remnant. A remnant left their land to go to honor God, to obey his voice. Verse 17. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. You know, there's something Paul says in the New Testament that's very important. There's, there's a remnant. There's always been a remnant. There's a remnant of Israel that was preserved in the kingdom of Judah. Let me take this a step further and show you. This goes on for generations, okay? This is not a one-time thing. And we read in chapter 15, verse 9, then he, meaning Asa, and to keep in mind, we're generations past, this is the grandson of Rehoboam. Asa gathered all Judah and Benjamin, okay? And those who dwelt with them, they are dwelling with them. Where are they from? From Ephraim, from Manasseh, from Simeon, tribes of Israel. For they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. A remnant that feared the living God came. So simple point. When we see what in the world is this woman who even knows what tribe she's from, what is this woman from the tribe of Asher doing there? Well, we understand a remnant had been preserved. God-fearing. And this tells us most likely indicates something that I think is important. This woman comes from a long lineage of God-fears of serious God fears, where it is highly probable that her genealogy, if you were to trace it, we don't have it, so we can just speculate. But if you were to trace it back, she would have come from family that was literally being part of the remnant and coming over. And so just interesting as a side note to think about. All right, moving on. The last part of verse 36, this is what we read. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. Anna never remarried. And that to me is really, really interesting because, you know, scholars will estimate she got married about, I mean, the extreme would be as young as 14, but probably around 15, 16, maybe even 17. This is probably where the, the time period, okay, let's, let's say she gets married at 16. She lives with her husband for seven years. She's 23. This is more than would be normal for someone to immediately go, okay, I'm going to seek another husband. 
And it's biblical. It's biblically permissible. She doesn't do that. Now, of course, we can have all sorts of fun and, and do all sorts of speculation of what kind of life did she have with her husband. I speculate she had an incredible marriage. And again, it's, it's speculation, but you got to look at what, she's, what, what happened here and what transpired. I, I want to believe, I do, I want to believe that it was the most incredible seven years of her life. But the fact that she didn't remarry, that she had this perhaps amazing, amazing marriage, and she's so young and doesn't remarry, that is incredible in the context, the historical context of which it's stated. In, in, in other words, you know, to be in that generation for a single woman to, to not have a husband, to not have a provider, man, you're on your own. And that's a very scary thing. You're on your own. It's not like our society today where we have many, many women in the workplace. It's not uncommon at all. Nobody blinks, nobody flinches. It was very different back then for a woman to be able to try to support herself. And yet she did it. And you think about Paul's words, whether you're talking about 1 Timothy 5, whether you're talking about 1 Corinthians 7. And Paul talks about that if, in regard to the widows, that if they don't marry, according to his judgment, he's careful with his wording, according to his judgment, he says they will be happier. But you know what? Not everyone's called to that. And there's nothing biblically you know, against getting remarried. Remarried's a good thing. I, I know many, many people that have remarried, and I know God brought them their spouse. But Anna had a different call. She had a different calling, and I'm telling you, this is a woman who totally gave every fragment of her heart, her mind, her soul to the living God. It is really something. And you'll notice, it says 84 years here. Now, there, there's a little debate here, and I'll just let you in on this. The, the, the debate is this. Was Anna, is, is what Luke conveying is that Anna is 84 years old, or has she been living as a widow for 84 years. And we can get, I'm not going to bore you with the grammar and stuff. But there's a debate. Which is it? Well, you know, let's begin here. It really doesn't matter. She's old. And she's lived most of her life. Right? She's of great. Don't laugh at me. It says great age. It's a great age. Now what? Okay, I'm going to defend myself for a second. Psalm, I think, Psalm 90, right? Our days are 70 years, and if by great perchance it would be 80 years, which it signifies, man, you make it to the 80 marker, you wave the flag, hallelujah. You, you've done well, according to Psalms, all right? So she is a person of great age, even if you just say she's 84. But if you're to go to the other side of the camp, just for sake of argument, and say, okay, she's 16, she got married at 16, lived seven years, 23 and uh, now it's 84. I mean, you're talking 107 years old. I mean, either way, she lived most of her life as a widow. As a widow. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, you women that are, that are single and, and older, <laughs> getting, getting, getting up there in age, Man, I got to tell you, this is, she is profound. 
She is an inspiration. And I say this because, you know, some of you women think you're alone and you're not. You're not alone. And that's why I'm excited to dig into what we're about to see here. uh, Because you're going to see how powerful this woman is. All right? Moving to verse 7, getting myself out of the pit over there. (laughs) Who did not depart from the temple... But serve God with fastings and prayers night and day. Every waking moment of this woman's life was given into prayer. She is immersed in prayer. She had literally rejected her flesh. She had taught her body how to submit to the spirit by making it a habit to fast. This woman is engulfed in prayer and fasting. Why would she do that? She wants God. She wants relationship. She wants peace. She wants shalom. She wants intimacy. She wants to be loved. She wants power. All these things. And guess how to go get them? She knows. It's praying and fasting. See, she does it because she actually believes that if she prays and she fasts, it's going to impact her life. It's going to change her circumstances. She believes that God will, literally, the God who made heaven and earth will commune with her. And so this kind of goes back to what I have taught before. You look at your prayer life. If your prayer life is pathetic, your faith is pathetic. And that's just a reality. People don't pray because they don't believe that it matters. They really don't believe it's going to make a difference. They really don't believe that there is any power in it. And so they don't give themselves over to it. Anna does. Anna is an incredible example of what it looks like to be a righteous, God-fearing woman full of faith and clarity and wisdom, and she is connected to the Lord. We, as people, men and women, both, we need to learn from Anna. We need to be inspired by her. And we need to do, you know, a little test, just a self-test to say, how, you know, how's my prayer life? Have you incorporated fasting? Are you incorporating? Are you in the habit of telling your flesh no, even once a week? Are you in the habit of doing that? I'm telling you, if you're not in the habit of doing that, are you... You, you, you just you can't convince me that you're in control. You can't. That's the point of being able to do this. I am a testimony to the power of prayer and fasting, and my even in my own life, knowing the control you get, the closeness, the intimacy that you can get with the Lord. And I also know this: war will drive you there. War, true war. If you're going to fight, see Anna getting involved with praying and fasting, she is a woman who is a warrior. She has chosen to fight in this battle. She is not going to sit back. She's not going to throw up her hands and say, I don't, I don't, there's nothing I can do. As you know, I, mean, I understand that we, we got a lot of things going on in our lives. So you have a lot of people that are hurting and their lives are falling apart. How do you respond to that? Well, if you're not praying, it's because you don't believe in it. 
And I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. If you don't believe in praying, I don't know what you're doing here. I don't, because that is where we need to be. That's how we commune with God. I pray the word. You know, all these things, the Lord is training our hands for war, our fingers for battle. It will lead you to prayer and fasting. I guarantee you, it will lead you to more time in the word. You know, it never ceases to amaze me. You know, I read about all these amazing superheroes of the word, men and women. I mean, unbelievable superheroes. And don't kid yourself. You look at this, you say, I want that. I want to experience what they experienced. Problem is you don't want to do what it takes to get there. How many, you can read Job and the amazing blessing that God gave him and how God was with him, how God showed himself to him. He heard his voice. He revealed to him. You're like, that's awesome. Do you want to go through what Job went through to get there? What about Joseph? Wrongly thrown into prison, his life destroyed for years. Betrayed by his own family. Lord was working in through, through all of it. He was tested. And you can see all the amazing things, the impact that Joseph made to literally prepare for his family, to support them. And not just that, he prepared and supported the entire world. He did unimaginable things. But are you willing to do what he did to get there? And that's the problem. How else do you say it? We've turned into you know, Christian weak pansies right? We're just weak. You're weak, feeble, and we're not going to do anything great. We'll never make history. We will not make history in this life unless we start acting like Anna's, unless we start changing our behaviors, our patterns, our practices. Only then are we going to become great for the kingdom of God, and that is something I want. And if you want it, you know how to get it. You know how to get it. Verse 38. And coming in that instant, meaning in Horah in the Greek, it says, at that time, she gave thanks to the Lord. She came in at what time? As Simeon is interacting with Mary and Joseph, as he's blessing and thanking the Lord. She comes in, this is interesting, as a second witness. She's a second. Well, that gets really interesting when you consider what the Mishnah says that women can't serve as witnesses. The two witnesses that are recorded in the Gospel of Luke are one is Simeon and the other is Anna. When Yeshua is brought to the temple, amazing thought. She comes in, she gives thanks to the Lord. She's doing what Simeon had done. And then we read this. And spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Yerushalayim. The last thing we read about Anna is that. Think about this. The first thing we're told about Anna she is a prophet. The last thing we're told about Anna is that she's an evangelist. That is an amazing thing. Anna actually went in and asked Simeon, guess what? She's confronted with an option. Do you believe that Yeshua is the son of God? Do you believe he's the savior of Israel? Do you believe that he will bring deliverance to the world? She believed. She believed every bit of it. And she took to the street and preached the gospel. See, because she became a preacher of the gospel to share the message with everyone that was living in that period, oppressed 
by the Romans. You know, the true gospel, the true gospel, if it is conveyed properly and it is received in its proper context, will move people to tears, joy, thanksgiving, weeping, thanking God for his goodness, for his mercy, for his forgiveness. Because before that, they just didn't have hope. I think of 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. Paul says this, he says, but as we have been approved by God to what? To be entrusted with the gospel. Think about the honor that has been bestowed upon Anna. She has been entrusted with the gospel. She was approved. She fought the good fight. She laid waste to the flesh. She sought the Lord with her whole heart, soul, and mind. Didn't get distracted by the things of the world. Had not given a fragment of her heart to the world. But was in prayer and fasting day and night. That is an awesome woman. And it makes sense for me to see that God would entrust her. He would entrust her. And you think about the root of that trust. He trusted her to bring the most precious and glorious message the world has ever known. It was a privilege. It was an honor. And I got to tell you something. Outside of the shepherds, Anna is the first evangelist recorded in Scripture. That, that is an amazing thought to me. Daniel 12, verse 3, we read this. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Anna is a star. And, and, and we use that a lot in this day and age as, as a figure of speech, but she is a star. Turning many to Yeshua, turning them to righteousness, heralding the good news, the euangelion. This is what she's doing. Proverbs eleven thirty: the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, but he who wins souls is wise. Anna is wise. What is Anna concerned about? Again, she's a prophet. The only thing she's concerned about is the Lord. Consumes her. She's passionate about the Messiah. I'll take you to Isaiah 52. and just read you a very small portion. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him or her who brings good news. Anna had beautiful feet. She brought the good news. She told people about Yeshua. It goes on, it says, who proclaims peace, shalom. He is the prince of peace, is he not? Who proclaims glad tidings of good things. Who proclaims salvation, Yeshua in the Hebrew. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. You go to the Targums, it's interesting. When you go to the Targums, it renders this phrase differently. It renders it the following, the kingdom of your God is revealed. I want you to just stop. Soak that in because we're learning things about the gospel here. When the gospel goes out, it is the revelation of the kingdom of God. And I love Yeshua in Matthew 12, as you go there, he says, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he says in, in, in Luke, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, the spirit of God has come upon you. The, the, the kingdom, 
the kingdom. It's a revelation of the kingdom of God. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing to think about. I'm going to jump to Luke here. And we're going we're to round this out with Yeshua's passage. And, and the backdrop here is Yeshua. He's in his hometown of Nazareth. This is the first, in Luke, this is the first action of ministry Yeshua takes after he comes out of the wilderness and receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He goes into his home synagogue, which he is accustomed to doing every Shabbat. And he enters in on the Shabbat and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up and it opens up to Isaiah 61. And he reads about himself. And he says this, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to what? To preach the gospel to the poor. Now you're going to want to pay attention because we're going to learn a lot about the gospel here. And number one, we know that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Yeshua is the gospel. He is the grace, the mercy, the deliverer, the holy one of God. Okay, and here he's like, he's going, he did. He went out and preached himself. He's bringing good, the gospel, the good news to the poor, which means those who are destitute in this age, who are beaten and downtrodden, he's going to raise up and they're going to be rich. And this is what, you know, the prophets talk about how every mountain is going to be laid low and the valleys are going to be exalted. This is exactly what that statement means. You have the ones who are downtrodden and they're poor, they're coming up. And then he goes on and says this, he has sent me to heal the broken hearted. This is the gospel. When the gospel goes out, do, do, are, are we picking up? The gospel is supposed to have radical transformation of power impacting people. The true gospel. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change your life. Or you haven't received the gospel. If you have not been radically impacted, something is wrong. You, you've received a different gospel. Here he says he is going out, and this is the beauty of what I love about this, to heal the brokenhearted. You know what? Those who are broken, those who are overwhelmed by the things that are going on in their life, those who are in despair, those who have emotional scars. Maybe some of you have emotional, open, gaping wounds where you've been hurt so bad that you can't even function. And whatever that case may be, and especially, you know, I think of you women, there's, there's, there's a lot of women who have been severely abused and betrayed, oftentimes at a young age, uh, people taking advantage of young women. That's, that stuff's brutal. You want to talk about emotional roller coaster, an emotional scar that the enemy wants to rip that gaping wound open and wants you to bleed out. The gospel will bring healing. Yeshua will bring healing. He can do what no man can do. He can do that. That's the power of the gospel. That's, that's why I'm on board. I'm, I know who Yeshua is. I know what he can do. I know, you know, we, we're told to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. You know, the gospel provides an experience of love and humanity can't even comprehend giving i mean mean that when you meet yeshua in your heart and you give him everything you will experience a peace that passes all understanding it will not even make sense 
And it won't, your history will have no power over you. It's an awesome thing. He goes on to say, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind. And this is both physical, the power, this is the gospel. When the gospel goes out, this stuff is supposed to happen. People should be receiving their sight. And I don't just mean physically, but spiritually. And I love what the psalmist says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Open my eyes. I'm blind. I'm hindered. I cannot see without the Lord opening my eyes. That's what the gospel does. It gives me understanding. I can tell you right now, before I truly accepted gospel, I didn't understand this. I could read it and I have read it. I had read it and, and heard the different stories, how much understanding, I didn't have it. But when you receive the gospel in your heart and you confess Yeshua as the Messiah, your world's going to get flipped upside down. It's awesome. It's the power. It's the power of the gospel. And then he goes on and says this, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed by the devil. They are in bondage. They're in addictions. They have all sorts of ugly stuff in their life. This is, the God. this is what the gospel is supposed to take care of. I have seen people put down bottles that should not have been able to put down bottles, alcoholics. I've seen put, people put down cigarettes like that. That makes no sense. I mean, we even have people here that that happened, a great addiction. The Lord delivers them from that. It almost seems to me as I go through this and and Yeshua explains what the gospel is. Where is it? Where is it in your life? Where is it in this community? This is the gospel. This is what is supposed to be. These are the things that are supposed to be happening. It's people that are in total bondage and it could be fear. One of the things that I see that honestly, is bringing people into the depths of hell right now is fear. And for all different reasons, people curling up a ball, you're in bondage. You need the gospel. You need the pure gospel. You're pouring out your heart in faith and trusting in the Lord without reservation. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you fall. He will hold you. You will still, let me be clear on that statement. You will still go through it. You'll have tribulations. He says, be of good cheer. I've overcome them. But he will not let you go. That's the whole concept. I will never leave you or forsake you. This is the beautiful gospel truth. And then he ends with this, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And it's interesting, Paul, as he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation right now. And so if you confess with your mouth the Lord Yeshua, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, we are told you will be saved. It is an absolute fundamental. But we get, we, you know, there are times, people, we got to get back to the fundamentals. We got to get back to the gospel. We should be seeing the effects and the power of the gospel first in our own lives because you can't give something to someone else you don't have. If you don't have the gospel in you, if you don't have Yeshua living in your heart, you can't give him to anyone. You have no value. Unfortunately, that's sad. 
Our value, our identity is in him. You need that. You need that identity. If you're in an identity crisis, you don't have him. 